Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, rape, and racial violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Florida has always held an almost mythical place in America's imagination. According to local legend, the famous explorer Ponce de Leon searched Florida's wilderness for the fountain of youth. He didn't find it. But ever since then, Florida has been heralded as a place of good health and endless sunshine. In the early 20th century, Americans flocked to the area's warm waters and sandy beaches. But life for black men and women in Florida was far from a vacation. The Jim Crow laws of the South meant that the black citizens were segregated, forbidden from voting, and given second-rate educational opportunities. Even worse, Florida was a haven for the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacists. Lynchings were tragically commonplace. In the 1930s and 40s, an activist couple named Harry and Harriet Moore decided they'd had enough. They committed themselves to civil rights issues and were determined to do whatever they could to make life better for black Floridians. As Harry once said, Freedom is not free. If we want our complete emancipation, we must be willing to pay the price. Unfortunately, the Moore's activism would eventually cost both of them their lives. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the mysterious explosion that claimed the lives of Harry and Harriet Moore. This week, we'll examine the Moores' journey as civil rights activists and the fierce opposition they faced every step of the way. Next week, we'll cover the murder of Harry and Harriet and the flawed investigation into the deadly bombing. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Harry T. Brown was born on November 18, 1905, in the small farming town of Houston, Florida. The community was tucked away inside Suwannee County and filled with dirt-poor sharecroppers barely scraping by. Harry's parents, Johnny and Rosa, grew cotton on their small plot of land. They had to fight swampy conditions and constant bugs, but they somehow managed to make a living. 
Johnny took on several other jobs to make ends meet. He looked after the railroad's water tanks and manned a tiny store he set up in front of the family's home. And as soon as Harry was old enough, he was expected to pitch in too. Life was hard for the young boy. He was born with a debilitating stomach condition that made him frail and sickly. Harry's life only got worse in 1914 when he was only eight years old and his father Johnny got sick and died. The young boy tried to fill the void left by his dad, but the physical labor was too demanding. While this may have been devastating for some parents, Rosa simply took it as a lesson that her son's future wasn't at the farm. Harry was a bright and curious boy, and his mother wanted to make sure he got a formal education. At the time, all of the schools in Harry's area were exclusively for white people, so Harry's only option was to move to Jacksonville, where he would at least be allowed inside a classroom. In 1915, Rosa packed up Harry's things and sent the nine-year-old boy to live with his aunts in the city. Jacksonville, Florida was unlike anything Harry had ever seen before. The bustling city had a large, independent, and educated black community. For the first time, Harry was exposed to black-owned businesses, restaurants, and movie theaters. Harry's three aunts were also well-connected in Jacksonville's intellectual community. One was a nurse, and the other two were teachers. They always emphasized the importance of education to their young nephew. Now, Harry, you have to pay close attention in school tomorrow. School is your focus now, and all your energy has to go towards it. Don't scare the poor kid. Harry, you're a smart boy. You'll be just fine. Maybe one day you'll become a teacher like Adriana and me. That would be a fine job for you, Harry. You could educate young black minds and avoid hard labor. With some kids, teaching is hard labor. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not get ahead of ourselves. You're right. Harry, you focus on educating yourself for now. Then you can educate others. Harry enrolled at Stanton School, the most prestigious black academy in Florida. He quickly found his place. By all accounts, he was an excellent student, getting straight A's in all of his courses. His intellect soon earned him the nickname Doc. But as a black man, Harry's education was an exception, not a rule. At the time, Florida spent $11.50 per capita on white students and only $2.64 for black students. Even worse than the disparity was the ongoing violence against the black community. In 1919, when Harry was a freshman in high school, there were at least 76 lynchings reported nationwide. One took place only 30 miles from Harry's school. Harry spent much of his formative years reading reports of this shocking injustice. In 1920, a white mob attacked a black community in Ocoee, Florida, killing 37 people because a black man tried to vote. Just two years later, another white mob burned Florida's black city of Rosewood to the ground. The news didn't just make Harry angry. It inspired him to do something about it. By the time he was finishing high school, Harry had a plan. He would become a teacher and use his platform to educate a new generation of black children about activism. 
19-year-old Harry graduated high school in 1925. After passing a state educator exam, he was immediately offered a teaching position in Coco, a small town of citrus farmers near Cape Canaveral. It seemed like fate brought Harry to Coco. He was only there for a few weeks before he stumbled into the love of his life. Excuse me, miss. I saw you over here playing cards, and I just had to come over to speak to you. Took you long enough. You've been watching me from that corner for the better part of an hour. (laughs) Well, here I am. I'm Harry. Ah, you've got to be kidding. Why? Because I'm Harriet. (laughs) Well then, I think we're meant to be. And the similarities between them didn't stop there. Harriet Sims sold insurance in the nearby town of Mims and also worked as a teacher. The pair hit it off immediately. They married less than a year after that first meeting on Christmas Day of 1926. Harry was 21 years old. Harriet was 24. A year later, Harry was promoted to principal at the Titusville School for Black Students. He loved his life with his new wife and job, but the promotion came with its own set of challenges. The state of Florida only gave black schools enough budget for an eight-month school year instead of the typical nine. And to add insult to injury, black teachers earned less than half of white teachers' salaries. But despite their meager wages, Harry and Harriet managed to carve out a nice life for themselves. In 1928, Harriet gave birth to their first child, Annie Rosalie. With her puffy cheeks and cute smile, she soon became known as Peaches. Harry and Harriet built themselves a small two-bedroom home in Mims. By 1930, they filled the house with another child, who they named Juanita Evangeline. Once Harriet was ready to go back to work, she took a new position as a first-grade teacher at Harry's school. Under Harry's watch, his school in Titusville had expanded its curriculum to include civics lessons and black history. Harry was also committed to educating his teenagers about voting, even though it was nearly impossible for black Floridians to do so. Now these here are some sample ballots I brought to give you an idea of what you would be filling out. But before I tell you how to fill out a ballot, you should know what each candidate stands for. Mr. Moore, what's the use of teaching us this stuff? No one around here can afford the poll tax. Two dollars is a whole lot of money to vote. I understand that, but I think you should still know how. It seems like a waste of time. Not at all. Every American, rich or poor, white or black, should be able to vote. My hope is one day you'll be able to. And because of these lessons, you'll know how to be a good citizen. Now, get out your pencils. At the time, most Florida county registrars would not allow blacks to register to vote. And even if they could, their votes were largely meaningless. The state was completely controlled by Democrats, and blacks weren't allowed to join the party. Harry, with Harriet by his side, knew that it wasn't enough to teach about injustices. If they were going to make a difference, they would have to take the battle for civil rights out of the classroom and into the world. 
1933, a friend of Harry Moore's brought him a packet describing how to start a local branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. As Harry read through the group's goals, he felt inspired. It says that we can start our very own branch here in Brevard County. I can't believe they mailed me this brochure. I'm sure in the North you can receive mail like this just fine. But if the wrong person caught me with it, I could be killed. They make opening a club sound easy, but around here it won't be. But look at their goals. Voting rights for blacks in the South, anti-lynching legislation, equal education, an end to segregation. Sounds like a bunch of Northerners who don't know reality. Can I take this brochure home to show Harriet? In 1934, Harry Moore founded the Brevard County chapter of the NAACP. In its first years, the club focused on educational and social issues. Harry and Harriet stayed busy organizing parades, dinners, and educational lectures. But it wasn't all fun and games. Under Harry's leadership, the group slowly transformed from a community club to a political force, one that demanded the right to vote, the right to an equal education, and the right to live freely. Harry and Harriet Moore would soon be standing on the front lines of the fight for civil rights in Florida, but their activism would cost them their livelihoods and their lives. Up next, we'll explore the Moore's time as civil rights leaders and the powerful enemies they made along the way. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. And now, back to the story. In 1937, racial tensions in Florida were only getting worse. The Ku Klux Klan actively terrorized black communities. Florida was home to one horrible lynching after another. Any black man or woman who dared speak up against racial injustice put a target on their back. Despite these very real threats, Harry and Harriet Moore refused to be scared into silence. 32-year-old Harry and his 35-year-old wife worked all day at the Titusville School for Black Students, and at night, they continued their fight for civil rights. Their first goal was near and dear to their hearts, earning equal pay for white and black teachers. 
Harry was a leader of the all-black Florida State Teachers Association, and the FSTA had a plan to sue over the salary inequality. A similar lawsuit had already succeeded in Maryland with the help of the NAACP and their lawyer, Thurgood Marshall. But the state of Maryland was a completely different animal than Florida. No one had ever successfully attempted something like this in the Deep South. Regardless, Harry and the FSTA were determined to win. Now they just needed to choose a strategy. Listen, Harry, I'd be willing to file suit in my county, Ocala, but we have a strong clan presence. You're right, Ed. Ocala wouldn't work. We gotta be strategic here. We need some press, but not too much to draw the wrong type of attention. Well, how about you, Harry? Brevard County is small, but not too isolated. And you have a strong NAACP chapter there. Are you willing? Yes, of course. It'd be an honor. The FSTA hired a lawyer to help them file the lawsuit. Harry immediately sent a letter to the NAACP's headquarters, telling them of their impending litigation and asking for the organization's support. Thurgood Marshall himself wrote back to Harry with the NAACP's approval. He also offered to help the lawyer in his arguments. Harry was thrilled, but it didn't take long before the FSTA hit a snag. None of the teachers in the organization were willing to put their name on the lawsuit. They knew if they did, they would be immediately fired. Harry eventually went to his friend, John Gilbert, principal at Coco Junior High School, to see if he would volunteer. Once the FSTA promised John to cover his salary if he was fired, John agreed. In March of 1938, Harry and his group submitted Gilbert v. Board of Public Instruction of Brevard County, Florida. But in less than three months, the lawsuit was shot down in the local circuit court. The FSTA appealed the decision. In June, the Florida Supreme Court heard arguments on the case— or they were supposed to. Several of the justices reportedly turned their backs to the FSTA's lawyer when he stood up to make his arguments. Unsurprisingly, the FSTA lost the case. But Harry was not discouraged. In 1941, Harry helped found the Florida State Conference of the NAACP and was elected its president. The NAACP was still in its infancy in Florida, with only a few hundred members statewide. But Harry was intent on growing the organization into a powerful force. Florida desperately needed it. The state was a hotbed of racial violence. In 1944, a 15-year-old named Willie James Howard was forcibly drowned by three men after he allegedly flirted with a white girl. The murder took place in Live Oak, Florida, only a few miles away from Harry's birthplace. The senseless killing enraged Harry, and he needed to find out the truth. Harry tracked down Willie's parents, who had fled town after their son's death, fearing for their lives. He sat down with them to take sworn statements. And this was all because of a Christmas card? Yes. Willie gave a greeting card to a white girl he worked with down at McCrory's Five and Dime. I told him not to give any sort of card to the girl. She could take it the wrong way. The girl got upset, thought it was too flirtatious, 
so Willie went to her place on New Year's Day to apologize. He should have just left well enough alone. Unbelievable. All this over a card. I'm so sorry. What happened then? The girl's father didn't like the apology. He drove over to our house and demanded that me and Willie get in his truck at gunpoint. There were two other white men in the car and they tied up Willie's hands. Oh, my poor son. They drove to the Suwannee River and forced Willie to jump in. He couldn't swim with his legs and arms tied up. So, you know what happened. I'm so sorry for your loss, Mr. and Mrs. Henry. I'm going to do everything in my power to see that these men get punished. Harry sent the statements to the NAACP headquarters and urged them to demand a federal investigation. Having seen countless lynchings go unpunished in Florida, Harry had no confidence in the state judicial system, and he was right to be skeptical. On May 8, 1944, the Suwannee County Grand Jury failed to indict the murderers despite the evidence and testimony of Willie's parents. Harry continued to fight for a federal investigation, but the Justice Department claimed they had no jurisdiction. Civil rights laws were incredibly weak, and the only way the federal government could intercede was if an officer of the law was involved in the crime. It was discouraging news, but Harry kept fighting. He continued investigating lynching cases and wrote countless letters to officials urging their support and demanding more thorough and fair investigations. Harriet was in full support of her husband, but she began to worry that he was working too hard. She often didn't see Harry for days at a time, as he traveled all over Florida to stump for the NAACP. It didn't seem sustainable. Unfortunately, she wouldn't have to worry for long, because Harry's next cause would not only cost him his job, but hers as well. On August 31st, 1944, 34-year-old Harry co-founded the Progressive Voters League, or PVL. The NAACP, under Thurgood Marshall, had just won a massive case in the Supreme Court. In Smith v. Allwright, the court ruled that Texas Democrats' all-white primary laws were unconstitutional. This meant Florida's similar laws were abolished. The PVL launched a statewide voter registration drive. By the 1945 Democratic primary, thousands of black Floridians were able to vote. But in Harry's home county of Brevard, no black voters were allowed to change their registration from Republican to Democrat. The county supervisor of elections simply refused to process the paperwork. Harry knew the racist election supervisor was not going to budge unless Harry could force him so he hired a lawyer and prepared to sue the city of Titusville. Unfortunately, Harry's fight angered many white politicians, including some officials at the Brevard County School Board. And at the end of the 1946 school term, Harry was fired from his school. They also fired Harriet. The Moors were suddenly blacklisted. No other schools would hire them. And worst of all, their two daughters were in college and now their educations were in jeopardy. You've been principal of that school for almost two decades, and they just act like that's nothing. I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about you. I never thought you'd be punished for my work. 
It's not only your work, it's ours. It's every black man and woman's. It's not fair. It never is. But maybe this is an opportunity. You always said you wished there were more hours in the day. Now you got them. The Moors believed it was time for Harry to become a full-time activist. And so, at the next budget meeting of Florida's NAACP, Harry requested to become a paid employee of the organization. His track record at the NAACP was hard to ignore. In his five years of part-time work, Florida's NAACP had grown from nine branches to 53 and from a few hundred members to almost 10,000. They brought Harry on as a paid executive secretary. Because they had a meager budget, Harry would have to raise much of his salary himself. But thankfully, it was enough for him and his wife to live on. And one of his first moves as an NAACP staffer turned out to be a huge success. In 1947, a Florida senator introduced a bill to turn Florida's Democratic Party into a private club. This would allow them to pick and choose members and exclude whoever they wanted. Harry launched a campaign urging black Floridians to telegram and write Florida's Congress demanding the bill be defeated. He said, What have Florida's black citizens done so bad and so unpatriotic that we should be denied the fundamental right to vote? Can Florida have a true democracy with one-third of its citizens and taxpayers disenfranchised? It worked. The bill was defeated, and with legislation requiring a literacy test to vote past the Florida Senate, Harry initiated a similar crusade. Once again, he was successful. Harry, with the help of the NAACP and PVL, had registered tens of thousands of black voters and transformed black Floridians into a powerful political force. But it also enraged the state's white supremacists. As the public face of Florida's most famous black organizations, Harry was repeatedly threatened by groups like the KKK, and Harriet became concerned for her husband's life. She was right to worry. Florida was about to experience a wave of racial violence unlike any seen before, and the Moors would find themselves in the center of it all. Coming up, we'll unpack the events leading up to Harry and Harriet's tragic deaths. Now, back to the story. In 1949, 43-year-old Harry Moore and his wife, 46-year-old Harriet, remained dedicated to peacefully fighting for civil rights in Florida. But that summer, their steady success as activists stalled when a violent race riot erupted only miles from their home. On July 16, 1949, a young white woman from Groveland, Florida, accused three black men and one black teenager of rape. Three suspects were caught almost immediately, Sammy Shepard, Walter Irvin, and 16-year-old Charlie Greenlee. The last suspect, Ernest Thomas, was still on the run. By nightfall, an armed group of 100 white men stormed the county jail. They demanded the jailers release the alleged assailants and let the mob take care of them. The sheriff, Willis McCall, managed to talk the crowd down, but the angry group was still out of control. The gang stormed Groveland's black neighborhood, 
shooting at black businesses and homes. The next day, McCall declared that the three suspects had all confessed. This was a questionable claim at best, but the newspapers printed McCall's statement as if it were fact. As news spread through Florida of the alleged rape, hundreds of angry white men and women mobbed Groveland once again. All 350 of the town's black residents had to be evacuated. On July 18, 1949, a huge crowd rioted, destroying Groveland's black neighborhood, burning down multiple houses. It took hundreds of National Guardsmen to break up the mob. A few days later, Ernest Thomas was found by police and shot dozens of times in the back. Harry and Harriet were outraged. Harry sent a telegram to the Florida governor demanding that the mob leaders be prosecuted. But the governor did little to help. Harry then wrote the state attorney general, who did not respond. He even wrote to President Truman himself, but once again, he heard nothing. Harry couldn't trust the county, state, or federal government to investigate Groveland. He knew he would have to launch his own inquiry. Towards the end of July, Harry hired a lawyer to obtain affidavits from the living suspects, who the press had started calling the Groveland Boys. The lawyer was shocked by what he discovered. The three prisoners were covered in dried blood. Their bodies were discolored due to countless bruises and cuts. And their story was very different from Sheriff McCall's. What happened? How did you get these injuries? From the police. Who else? What exactly did they do? They kicked us, beat us, even handcuffed us to a pipe and beat us with hoses. They tried to get us to confess. Got Sammy and Charlie too, but I never did. But Sheriff McCall claims all three of you confessed. He's a dirty liar and a violent cheat. The man got his confessions at the sharp end of a broken Coke bottle. When the lawyer gave Harry the transcript, Harry was horrified at how the prisoners had been treated. He immediately sent a letter to the governor insisting he take action against Sheriff McCall. The Groveland boys have been brutally beaten by local officers in an effort to force confessions from them. Surely the minds of all decent Americans, both white and colored, will rebel against such brutality. One would be inclined to wonder whether we are living in democratic America or communist Russia. On August 9, 1949, Harry took his findings public. He sent press releases to all the major papers highlighting the prisoners' inhumane treatment. Sheriff McCall denied the charges, even though the FBI had photos of the men in prison that proved Harry was telling the truth. The Groveland boys finally went to trial in September of 1949. The judge did not allow the proof that the men's confessions had been coerced to be admitted into evidence. He also did not allow a change of venue, even though it was impossible to find an unbiased jury in Groveland. The outcome of the trial was a given. The all-white jury quickly convicted all three suspects. Irvin and Shepard received a death sentence while Greenlee was given life in prison. The national chapter of the NAACP appealed Irvin and Shepard's cases to the Florida Supreme Court. They did not appeal Greenlee's sentence because they feared a retrial could possibly lead to a death sentence for the teen. 
Meanwhile, Harry's incessant outreach about the Groveland boys' beatings finally earned the Justice Department's attention. In April of 1950, a U.S. attorney convened a grand jury to examine the allegations, but it didn't help. In the end, the grand jury not only failed to indict Sheriff McCall, they praised him, saying his actions saved the Groveland boys from being lynched. Still determined, the NAACP, with Harry's help, raised thousands of dollars for the defendant's defense fund and appealed the Florida Supreme Court decision. The Groveland boys' case was finally on its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Harry was anxious for the federal court to hear the case. So far, no government officials had actually taken his claim seriously. The moment Harry had been waiting for finally arrived on April 9, 1951, when the United States Supreme Court heard opening arguments on the Groveland case. It was a huge success. Sammy Shepard and Walter Irvin's convictions and death sentences were reversed in a unanimous decision which ruled that Groveland's jury selection process had discriminated against blacks. The justices also believed the sensationalized press around the crime had made a fair trial impossible, especially considering Sheriff McCall had publicized the defendant's supposed confession before the trial. Harry was ecstatic. He sent letters to every Florida NAACP member urging them to help his membership drive as an acknowledgement of the Supreme Court's ruling. Irvin and Shepard are not our sons or our brothers. Perhaps we have never seen them, but these boys are members of our race. And when the life of any innocent is spared, all of us should rejoice. Unfortunately, Harry spoke too soon. Immediately after the Supreme Court's ruling, Florida's state attorney decided to retry Irvin and Shepard. The trial would have tragic consequences. In 1951, Florida experienced a wave of hate crimes known as the Florida Terror. As the NAACP won more and more civil rights for its black members, white supremacists in Florida grew angrier and angrier. The Ku Klux Klan declared an all-out war on the NAACP, and Harry Moore, as the leader of Florida's state conference, was in their crosshairs. Throughout the year, multiple black homes, unsegregated businesses, Jewish synagogues, and Catholic churches were destroyed with dynamite. Tensions in Florida were already high when the unthinkable happened. On November 6, 1951, Sheriff McCall picked up Sammy Shepard and Walter Irvin for a pre-trial hearing. On their drive back to Groveland, McCall shot the two prisoners, killing Shepard and severely wounding Irvin. McCall claimed it was self-defense. According to the sheriff, when he got out of his car to check on a flat tire, Irvin and Shepard attacked him, even though the two prisoners were handcuffed together at the time. News of the shooting exploded across Florida. Many people had a hard time believing Sheriff McCall's version of events, including Harry Moore. Harry was outraged that Irvin and Shepard had been trusted in the hands of McCall after he and his deputies had beaten them before their first trial. Harry sent a telegram to Florida's governor demanding he investigate the shooting. Once Irvin had recovered from his bullet wounds, 
the NAACP's lawyer visited with him to get his side of the story. Now, Walter, can you walk us through exactly what happened before the gun went off? Yes, sir. The sheriff pulled over to the side of the road, said he was going to check his tires. But then all of a sudden, he snatched me and Shepard out of the car and began firing. Did anything happen prior to that to make him do that? No, we didn't provoke him at all. He shot Shepard right quick and then right quick shot me. Did you have good hopes of coming out of this trial all right? Yes, sir. I, I sure did. Why would I try to escape? I didn't have no reason to. After hearing Irvin's story, both the NAACP and the state attorney general asked Florida's governor to suspend Sheriff McCall, but the governor refused. Despite the governor's inaction, Harry Moore continued to demand that McCall be fired. He wrote letters to government officials, made fiery speeches at NAACP chapters, and circulated petitions calling for McCall's removal. At the same time, he raised money for Irvin's defense fund and Shepard's funeral. The publicity Harry produced not only helped garner funds, it caught the attention of the KKK. As he traveled around Florida, Harry began to notice that he was sometimes being followed. And back home, Harriet started finding menacing letters in their mailbox. Harry, please! Just look at this letter. Fine. If you won't read it, I'll read it to you. It says, You best get your nose out of that Groveland business. Don't stick your neck out for those men, or your neck is bound to be broken. Harriet, they're just words. Words have meaning. You, of all people, should know that. I'm not scared of them. I can't allow myself to be scared of them, sweetheart. Despite his brave face, Harry was also concerned by the threats to his life. At one point, someone broke into the Moore's home and stole Harry's shotgun. Harry began carrying a pistol for self-defense. He was fond of saying, I'll take a few of them with me if it comes to that. Harry Moore was ready to fight to the death, but Harriet begged her husband to keep a lower profile for his safety. And once Christmas of 1951 rolled around, Harry agreed. He needed a break. On Christmas Day, Harry and Harriet, along with their daughter Peaches and Harry's mother, left their house in Mims and headed to a neighbor's for dinner. A thick fog rolled in and settled down around their empty home. Through the mist, a lone vehicle turned off its headlights and crept into the family's driveway. Quietly, two men parked and got out of the car. One crawled under the Moore's home with a bundle in his hands. Then the pair slipped back into the car and drove away. And with that, they were gone. An hour or so later, the Moors returned home, stuffed from Christmas dinner. Peaches was excited that her sister was coming back in a couple of days. The family had agreed to wait until then to exchange their Christmas presents. Harry's mom lumbered up the stairs to go to sleep, followed by Peaches. Harry and Harriet shared a quiet moment together in the living room. 
December 25th was not only an important day for their faith, it was also their wedding anniversary. The couple reminisced over a small slice of cake. 25 years. Can you believe it, sweetheart? It's hard to. Feels like just yesterday you were introducing yourself at that party. I was so nervous. <laughs> I know. To another 25 years. Cheers to that. Now, let's get to bed, sweetie. Yes. There'll be lots of work to do in the morning. Unfortunately for Harry and Harriet, the morning never came. As they lay down to sleep, they had no way of knowing a bomb was sitting just under their floorboards, ready to explode. And once it did... It would send shockwaves through the burgeoning civil rights movement in Florida and the entire country. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two on the death of Harry and Harriet Moore. For more information on the Moors, amongst the many sources we used, we found, before his time, the untold story of Harry T. Moore, America's first civil rights martyr, by Ben Green, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahue. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Bill Butts, Tiana Camacho, Kai Jordan, Julian Smith, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new ParCast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who were far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.